So um, anyhow, today I want to take the, t- the time we have, and uh, I'm going to really use today's sermon. I uh, felt dire- directed to do this, and so we try to you know, pray and ask God to guide us in each week and what, we're, what he wants us to, to bring. And I'm going to tell you a Bible story today, and it's going to be from what we call it the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, the, uh, a story from the book of Judges. So if you want to follow along, we'll be in Judges in a little while here. But we're going to tell you a story, an ancient story from ancient Israel, and it's a story that teaches us a little bit about the consequences of sin. And I want to put that word sin on the screen as I begin because I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about it because I know that just bringing up that word, it just conjures up so many conversations and thoughts because it's kind of a big all-encompassing church word to describe anything that's you know, done wrong or bad. It means a lot of things. People might out there might refer to making a mistake or messing up or doing or, or uh, doing something bad or you know going the wrong way. In the church world, we just call it sin, and we'll define that in a little bit here in in some way in a certain way. But um, just bringing it up, it brings up so much to the forefront of our mind because of uh, especially with religious people. And I could because of that, I could spend four or five weeks just doing a sermon series on sin and its doctrinal implications and the gospel and all sorts of stuff. That's not the point of today's sermon. But I wanted to bring attention to it real quick because there's a couple groups of people that I'm mindful of that I can't get stuck on because I got a story to tell. The first people that I'm on my mind are those who were perhaps raised in a religious, a culture of religious mistreatment or even spiritual abuse where people used words like this to control or to be unforgiving and, uh, and whether it was a mom and dad that was unhealthy or a church leader or a church family that was unhealthy, how they navigated people's struggles or people's past and, uh, or the culture they just created. Sometimes, if, depending on our background, just talking about sin can be a triggering thing because of, of things that we uh, have experienced. And I understand that. And I, honestly, it's not the direction that God's Spirit has led me to, to focus on today. But if that's you, I want to encourage you to come see me. Let's talk about that. Let's sit down. I'll have coffee. We'll talk and we'll just, let's hammer that out. Let's work through that because we don't want to ever walk into the rest of our lives unhealthy because of things that have been handed to us in the past that bring baggage. So come talk about that with me, please. I also am always aware of the fact that when you bring up a word like sin, because it's such a church word for doing wrong, that it brings up all the doctrines that attain to salvation and the gospel. And the church has got our own set of people who like to, we like to nerd out. And I'm one of them, so you know, I'm, I'm not throwing stones. But it's kind of like in, in pop culture, there's those people who like to nerd out about Star Wars or Star Trek or Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm talking about? They like to nerd out about it. They're like, this is how the story's supposed to go, and I'm a purist, you know? This is how the, 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 it's supposed to go, and you got that wrong, and, and they're actually, you know, they're going to argue with you about how things are, and we, we know that happens. And here's the thing about the church world. The church world is full of people who like to nerd out about theology and get together and debate how it's supposed to be and what words are used which way and how doctrines are defined, and that's why you have denominations everywhere splintered off and churches from... You know, traditional churches, house churches, people gathered who don't agree with other people. It's so easy to get together and be like, actually, and, and, and nuance who's got God figured out the best and debate it to the ends of the earth. And if that doesn't interest you, I understand. Um, I can do that. I, I've been in this a long time, and I, I love to, to do that. But at the same time, I don't love to do that anymore because it's usually a waste of time. I'd rather just get in the trenches and work for uh, the kingdom. But anyhow... 
I acknowledge that. Sin is a very big word. And we're not going to go those directions. I would require several weeks for some of us. But I just wanted to acknowledge the topic is big. But when it comes to the gospel purely, I just want you to understand that you are loved. And then when it comes to sin on the front of spiritual consequences, that sin brought death and sin brings separation from God, that the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we have the hope and promise in God of salvation through Calvary. And, and sin is part of the gospel message. And I know that it's a negative thought, but it's a necessary. You can't remove the sin from the, from the conversation of the gospel or you defang the, the message or the need of a savior. And it's not, a, it's not bad to just acknowledge our, the fact that we're a hot mess and that we need a savior. In fact, the most comforting thing in the world is that God loves me for who I am, for all my struggles and all my warts and all my failures and all of me. He just loves me and he loves you. And, and so that's, that's a part of the gospel message that God sent his son and he paid the spiritual price for our sin and invites us into that relationship with him, invites us into faith, calls us into it to believe the gospel and receive it. And that's not the main direction of my sermon because while God paid the spiritual price for sin for us, Here's the thing today. There's this whole other side that we sometimes forget to muddy when we get into one lane or the other, and depending on our agenda. That while God paid the spiritual price for sin, there are still earthly consequences or human consequences for sin. And we sometimes we muddy those waters a little bit. But there are both, there's a spiritual side and there's the earthly consequences side. So if someone goes out today and commits murder, for example, you go, out, you go out and kill somebody. And I believe, I believe that theologically that God can forgive the sins, that sin and, and bring salvation to the murderer. And hopefully your theology allows that too, that God's God, grace isn't just big enough to cover your, this, you know, the sins that you need covered. It's, it's, it's bigger than, it's much bigger than that. So we believe that, right? That God forgives and God can save and redeem and spiritually pay the burden for even someone who kills somebody. But imagine the murderer going to court and saying to the judge, you can't, you can't, judge, tell me, you can't put me in jail. I asked God to forgive me. I've been, it's been redeemed. So it's over. He, he, you know, they're like, well, I'm glad that you found Jesus, but you still got to deal with the consequences. Imagine sitting in the jail cell saying, God, I don't know if I can believe in you. I asked you to forgive me and you let those mean people still put me behind bars. Imagine losing my job because I stole from the company and saying, I don't understand. Uh, I asked God to forgive me after I stole, so what's your problem, you know? Cheat on your spouse. There's consequences. So there's a spiritual side of sin and then there's the earthly consequences of sin. And the gospel is what God did to restore us back and to deal with the, the, the death that comes from sin. And we, and we can address that conversation. But on the other vein, there's the earthly consequences of our bad choices, of our wrong decisions, of our, of our unwise moves, of our sin. So what does sin mean? Well, without getting too technical, the Greek word, well, the Greek verb word for sin is hamartano, and it means this. It means to miss the mark. Picture a bullseye, and you throw a dart at a bullseye, and you miss it. You can miss it by a couple inches or a hundred feet, but a miss is a miss. You miss the mark. And I know that spiritually speaking, when we miss the mark of God's perfection, that, that Jesus died for all of it, whether you missed by a couple inches or a hundred yards, it all needs Calvary, it all needs grace, and, and God's got it covered. But when it comes to earthly consequences, we understand that some of our missing the mark in life is more consequential than other things. There are some things in life that when we miss the mark, 
is, seems to be fairly minor bumps and other things that are they're life-altering devastations. By the way, we fixed the steeple. You notice that? It's all better now. Took the, so glad we did that, you know? No more sounds. Ugh. It's coming down. Anyhow, so, um, so, so sin has consequence. And we miss, if a sin is to miss the mark. And so it means a number of things, whether you use a different term to explain it away or to categorize it, it's, it's just, it could be something ominous, something huge, or something small. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this in, in James chapter 4, verse 17. He defines it. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. It's as simple as that. So if I know I need to get up and get my work done and I don't, if I know I ought not to put that stuff in my body, whether it's bad eating or substances, or whether I know I should go out and get busy doing this or I should probably not behave that way, I shouldn't lose my temper. I shouldn't say, I shouldn't spread that rumor. Whatever it is. And I, when I know what I ought to do and that I don't do it, on any level, that's sin. So sin's a very broad, encompassing category, scripturally. Very big. We understand that. And not all sin is evil, but all evil is sin. That's another conversation, too. We could say it this way, that sin is anything that hurts someone that God loves, including yourself. That's important to say. Sin is anything that hurts someone that God loves, including you. And God loves you. And that's why when we hear God's words on a subject like sin and warnings about sin, we need to sit back and say, not just hear his words, but hear his tone. The problem with written words is we always misread the tone. Have you ever done that before? Someone sends you a text message and you see the words, but you can't hear the tone and you misjudge what they were trying to say. Or you get on Facebook and you read a post and you miss the tone and you miss understand it. I think because of our spiritual upbringings and religious culture for some of us, we, we hear God's words on this subject, but we, we get confused about his tone. But I want you to hear the tone of a God who loves you, who is what we just sang about, a good, good father. And that's what a good father does. That's what a good person does. We understand this in culture. That's what a good teacher does in schools, administration, and coaches, and trainers, and parents we, 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 we take care of and we do our job, but we also warn and we also instruct and we coach. If a trainer was here today training you and they came to you and said, don't lift your weights that way because if you do, you'll hurt your body, you would be like, oh, you negative Nancy, don't talk about those things to me. If they said, hey, don't eat that way because you're going to undermine your health, they're not being negative. They're just saying, this is part of the journey. I've got to instruct you, coach you, and warn you about how to do this. As a parent, I hope I'm a good father, my kids can be the judge of that as, they, uh, as life goes on. But I hope that, that I am. I want to be. I'm, I, I come short. We all do. But I know this. Part of the job is to provide and, and care for my kids. is to love them unconditionally, whether I agree with them or not, whether they're right or wrong. To love them unconditionally. And it's also to instruct them and train them and coach them and warn them. Don't put that fork in a light socket. Don't play in the street. You get hurt. Don't hang out with that group of kids. Don't put that substance in your body. When you operate a vehicle, do it this way. Be safe where you, what you, how you do things. You know, you're just, you're just, that's part of a parent. It includes the warning. And, a, and, and we know, don't, don't we all wish all parents did that today? They all walked into their homes and they actually provided and cared for and loved unconditionally. And don't we wish that they all stepped in and would warn and say, hey, we can't do that. Don't do that. I love you, but that's not gonna hurt. That's gonna hurt you. And I'm gonna be sad to see the results of that because I care about you. That's what good parents do. And God is a good, good father. It's who he is. And you're loved by him. That's who you are. 
And he's going to warn us along the way because he's perfect in all of his ways. And God in love warns us about sin because sin always has a cost, right? We understand that. Not just the spiritual cost that Jesus paid for on the cross, but there's an earthly cost of sin. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And it's not always physical death. Sometimes it's death of a marriage, death of a relationship, death of a job opportunity or career, death of a reputation, death of influence, death of whatever. A lot of things happen because of sin. Sin brings consequences. And so God in love warns us about sin because sin always has a cost. And here's the thing. God wants to be the only one to pay the price for sin. So he paid for it for us spiritually. He says, don't, don't do things that will hurt you or anyone else either. I love you too much for that. He's a good father. And I'm talking about the earthly side, the consequences of sinful choices in life. And some of us know that all too well. In fact, before I get into the story, I've got to get into the story here because I'm taking too much time. And we have a baptism to celebrate still today still. But uh, before I get there, I want to say this. Um, I understand that there are two major crowds that the sermon about consequences of sinful choices, two crowds, there's more than two crowds, but it's two crowds I'm concerned about balancing. And this is a pastor's job or a communicator's job every time. This is a tension that I live with in a sermon like this every time I do it. On one side, you're the people that you're, who are at a crossroads of a major life-impacting choices. You're trying to warn them, make a wise choice, make a godly choice, follow the Lord, lean into him, do, obey his word, don't do the wrong thing here. This is, a, this is consequential. Don't, don't sit there and say, ah, it's okay. You're trying to warn people of the consequences of going down the wrong path. But on the other side, you have a crowd of people that have gone down the wrong path and have experienced the consequences and feel beat up by it. And I'm not talking about even about spiritual consequences, I'm talking about life consequences. And they're like, yeah, I know. And then you want to comfort that crowd and say, it's okay, there's life after failure, there's life after mistakes, there's life after it all. God's grace, yay, go forward. But then you don't want the other crowd to say, oh, so it doesn't matter what I do then because it's going to be fine, you know? So you're trying to walk this tension, right, of warning, but also saying, but hey, if you messed up, God's still love. He's your, he's your father, man. But there's consequences, but there's also life after that. So anyhow, that's the tension that I'm balancing today. With that backdrop, I want to tell you a story from the ancient Hebrew scriptures from early Israel. It's a time of Israel where they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. And it's a fantastical story, by the way. You should enjoy it. Uh, came out of Egypt. They were brought to this promised land, the land that they named Israel after their ancestor Jacob. And uh, they lived in the land of Israel. And um, as they settled down there, they were given laws to govern their nation by. But as soon as they settled into the land, they went off the rails spiritually, you know, more, every way possible, they went off the rails. And eventually, they fell into national hard times. And the nations around them would oppress them because of their, their unhealth. And they would rule over them and mistreat them. And so the people would then turn back to God in prayer and say, God, deliver us. And God would raise up a deliverer, or they called him a judge at the time, a judge or a deliverer, who would do something militarily to free them from the oppression of this foreign power and give them some independence back. Then they would, they would continue to make bad choices, get in another big mess. Another national oppressor would come. They'd pray out to God again. God would raise another deliverer up. This went on and on and on throughout the book of Judges. You want to read an exciting, sad, tragic, interesting book, read the book of Judges. It's an interesting part of Israel's history. Well, at one time, they had no king yet in the land. At one time, 
they were oppressed by the nation of the Philistines. The Philistines began to oppress them and mistreat them, and they, were, they hated it. They were, they, were, they were abused. They were killed. They were, they were taxed. They, were just, they, they cried out to God for deliverance from the Philistines. And God raised up another deliverer for them. And he began before he was born by coming to the young deliverer's parents before the, he was born. A woman and a man who were not expecting a baby yet. One day, the woman's out in the field and she's working and the husband's in the house watching Sports Center or something, I don't know. And she's out in the field and the, and the angel appears to her in the field and says to her, hey, um, you're gonna have a baby, which is what many young moms want to hear. You're gonna have a baby, wonderful. And he's gonna be special, that's even better. He's gonna be a future deliverer for God's people. This is awesome news. And she runs in and she tells her husband. He comes out and meets the angel, has the same conversation, and he gives them special instructions about how to raise this child. In fact, I want to pick up the story in Judges chapter 13, and beginning with verse 4, the angel says to the mom, to the wife, he says, so be careful. Be careful, he says. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. He says, verse 5, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut. Interesting, isn't it? His hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth, and he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So he would be a deliverer, a judge that would deliver them from the Philistines. And he says to the mom, be careful what you put into your body, because you have a life inside there that's special for God. And when he's born, he will be a Nazarite. Now, don't confuse the term Nazarite with the term Nazarene. In the church world, we get those confused sometimes. Jesus was raised in the city called Nazareth, so he's called a Nazarene. That's not the same as a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a special group of people that were wholly set apart for God, and they had special, um, just a special, you know, dedication to God. Several rules that they had to follow as part of this group. Uh, one of them was... Um, you couldn't eat any, you couldn't touch the, the, the carcass of anything that was dead. Another thing was, uh, or, or eat anything that touched something that was dead. You couldn't uh, cut your hair. And so God says, the angel says to this lady, your son's going to be special. He'll be a, dedicated to God. Never cut his hair. Treat your body right while you're carrying him. And so on and so forth. Well, later on in verse 24 says, when her son was born, she named him Samson. She named him Samson, and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. How many knew I was talking about Samson before I got to his name? You already knew where we were going here? Okay, some of you. Samson. She named him Samson. And this kid, of course, was a Nazareth. So he, was, he was strong. We know the story. He was a very strong guy. So I don't know about you. Whenever I read a Bible story, I always try to picture the characters, don't you? I try to picture what they might look like. I try to picture, you know, just an image of, of them because I've got an active imagination. It's my, part of my disease. So anyhow, um, I try to picture the story of Samson. And he, here's a strong man. And he's, got, he's got long hair because it was a Nazarite. And so I, 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 maybe he looks something like Jason Momoa. I don't know. Just a possibility. Now, just now, just now, this became your favorite. Some of you girls in here, just, it became your favorite Bible story just now. You're like, oh, I love Samson now. This is a great story. So I understand. But I'm just trying to picture what he may have looked like. Anyhow, moving on. Um, uh, Samson, he's strong. He's, he's growing up and he's going to be a deliverer. But Samson had a struggle in his life. He had a struggle point in his, his um, spiritual, his, his journey. And that was he had a thing for 
for women. I mean, he really had a, he was, he was a, woman, a womanizer. And it wasn't, he didn't want the good girls. He didn't want the girls that he went to, you know, you know, tabernacle school with or whatever. He just didn't care about them, you know. He wanted the wild child, you know. He wanted to go off and have a good time. And so he was always looking outside of, uh, into, in, in the Philistines, who were their oppressors, he kept falling. And at least three times that we know about uh, running off having relationships with Philistine women. And so one of the stories, we're going to tell you one of the stories to set the stage for the final story. Um, one of the stories is found in Judges chapter 14 and verse 1. It says, one day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. And then she gave it back to him. Never mind, that was a bad joke. Okay. Um, oh. When he returned home, when he returned home, he told his father and his mother, he says, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her, get her for me. This is interesting because this is how it goes. Like, uh, you picture he doesn't come home saying, hey, dad and mom, is it okay if I date this girl? He's like, hey, I want her, go get her for me, you know? And this, is a, this was bothersome to his parents because this was his problem. In fact, they even said so in verse number three. His father and his mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe? They were from the tribe of Dan in Israel. Isn't there a woman from our tribe or from any of the tribes of the Israelites that you could marry? They asked, why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. There you go. <laughs> she looks good to me. I just want her. You know, so this is, his, this is his struggle. And his parents are like, why can't you find a good Jewish girl? You know, that's what they're doing here. And he's over here saying, um, no, she looks good to me. I want this one. And so they did, and he marries her. Well, skipping ahead into the story at some point, um, you're making me laugh here, Amy, too, okay? You're just killing me. <laughs> at some point in the story, Samson is going back and forth. They're going to have a celebration for his wedding. And his Israelite friends aren't there. When you read the story, you can tell that even at his wedding, it was just the, it was just the Philistines there because this was, he was doing a wrong thing. Even the best man in his wedding is just someone he doesn't know. It's a Philistine guy that probably his wife picked. I mean, it's just, he's just in a different, he's in a different place in life right now. But he's going back and forth to visit his parents in Israel, going to see his wife as the Philistines. And they're going to have a celebration to celebrate his wedding. And at some point in the journey, he had killed a lion on the pathway one time with his bare hands. Samson's super strong. Kills a lion with his bare hands. A different day, as he's passing by the lion, there's a, 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 some bees had made a, a nest or whatever you call it, a hive, inside the carcass of the lion, and it had honey. And so Samson goes up, and he, he um, puts his, uh, his staff in there, and he takes some honey out, and he eats it to refresh himself, and it tastes good. Now, that's a big no-no for a Nazarite. It's the food off the carcass of a dead animal. But he didn't care. He wanted it. He was living his own life anyhow. But it refreshed him, and he goes to the celebration. It's a seven-day feast, and all these Philistine guys are there. And so Samson says to them, he's like, guys, um, I want to make a riddle with you and a little friendly wager. This is before DraftKings and sports bet, and MGM bets or whatever. He said, I want to make a little friendly wager with you. Um, I'm going to give you a riddle, and if you can solve my riddle, I'll give each of you, that's 30 of you, 30 outfits. I'm going to buy you, get you 30 outfits, my expense. But if you can't guess my riddle, each of you must give me, that'd be 30 outfits for me. Deal? They're like, deal. So they made a bet, a wager. 
And Samson gives him a riddle, and he, it's all about the lion he killed. Out of, how, out of the eater came forth something that was sweet. And he gives him a riddle about finding honey in the carcass of the lion. And says, guess my riddle. And they can't answer the riddle. They don't know the answer to it. So the story goes that they went to his wife, and they said to her, we don't want to pay up this guy you married, this Israel guy you married. We don't want to pay him. So you tell us the riddle. And if you don't, we're going to kill you and your family and burn your house down. So they threatened her. So what is she going to do? Well, we'll pick up the story in Judges 14, verse 16. It says, so Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me. You hate me. Okay, this is a, this is a whole ploy right here, right? This is, a whole, this is a whole shtick right here, right? You don't love me. You hate me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. Notice that her people, not her husband. You don't love me. And, and Samson says to her, I haven't even given the answer to my own father and mother because I'd be a, they'd be upset because I'm a Nazarite and I got it from a dead lion. You know. But anyhow, I haven't told my own parents the riddle. Why should I tell you, he says. Verse 17, so she cried. Listen, she cried whenever she was with him and kept at it for the rest of the celebration. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. Now, guys, don't, don't nod or if you're with your girl right now and act like you know what I'm talking about here, just, just sit straight and poke her face, okay? But anyhow, um, we've all, hey, she just, she just wore him down. She wore him down. She wore him down. He's like, fine, I'll tell you. And he gives her the answer to the riddle. And then she went and explained it to the Philistine young men. Okay? Well, the end of the feast is going to come. He's going to go off and he's going to uh, see them and he's feeling smug that he's going to win and they're smug as they know they have the inside answer. Verse 18, so before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer. They said, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Ooh, right then he knew. Right then he knew what she had done. And he, he says, Samson replied, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. Yikes, I'm just going to leave that one alone, okay? <laughs> but Samson's mad. He's mad. So he just, like, he just calls it out. Now what he does next is he has to pay his debt. And so in verse 19 it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 Philistine men, took their belongings and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. In other words, he's like, I'll get your clothing for you. He goes out and kills 30 Philistines, takes their clothes and says, here's your outfits. But it says, but Samson was furious about what had happened. Say, so why is he upset? He didn't even have to write a check. He just took the clothes. Because he had to go do the work for them. And it wasn't just about getting the clothes for these guys. It was the humiliation. It was like, pay up, buddy. And he had to go out and get the clothes and bring them back. And here you guys are. Here's the debt I owe you. He was humiliated because his wife told a secret. And so he was furious. And he went home to live with his father and mother. So here's a separation going on. He just goes. So he, just, he just doesn't even talk to her. He just goes home. Stays with mom and dad. Verse 20, so his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. That's a whole movie in itself right there, okay? But anyhow, this is getting weird. So he goes away, so they give his best man and his wife get married. 
And what happens next, we're not going to read about because I, I don't have the time. But I wanted to show you that story to set up the later story. But what happens next is interesting because Samson goes back to see his wife and he finds out about the other marriage and then he ends up getting into some fights, ends up killing some people. They end up killing her and her family. He ends up killing people in revenge for that. It turns into, it turns into this epic war that moves from town to town and it affects the entire other cities. And it's Sam, they're all trying to kill Samson and Samson won't die. He's killing them. They even got him uh, in a town one time that t- tied him up and he let them and then he broke free from the, from the, from the ties and he beat him again. I mean, this, this story goes on. It's pretty epic stuff. He's a su- super guy, powerful man. If you want to read it for yourself this week in devotions, I'd encourage you to do that. Just open to Judges chapter 13 through 16, but pop some popcorn before you do because it's going to be a fun story to read, okay? Now, All that early story to set up what happens at the end. Somewhere in between time, Samson fell for another woman along the way. And this was his weakness, man. His parents were like, why can't you find a good Jewish girl? And he's like, I just like those heathen hotties, you know. That was his thing. And so he kept going after after them, and he couldn't stop. So anyhow, um, the story takes us to Judges 16 and verse number 4. It says, sometime later... Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who, was, who lived in the valley of Sorek, another heathen hottie. Um, he fell in love with Delilah. And the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now this is a big deal. There's a lot to unpack there. Notice that, that they're once again coming to Samson's woman to try to get the answer. But this is not for some riddle for some clothing. This is about his life. Because Samson has been whooping them. And they've been trying to kill him and he's been killing all of them instead. And they're not, they're not playing, this is not a riddle anymore. This is about we want him dead. You get him subdued, we'll pay you. Find out how to subdue him. Find out how to, to, to tie him up. Get him subdued and we will make you rich. 1,100 pieces of silver from each of us. That's a lot of money for her. What they were saying to her is this. They were saying, Samson has a weakness for the women. You are a beautiful woman. You should monetize it. You should monetize his stupidity and his lust and his passion monetize it for your own gain and play along because you'll get rich. And she's like, okay, sounds good to me. And so she begins a little game with him. Verse six, Delilah says to Samson, please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. And Samson's like, what? She's like, yeah, what makes you so strong? Hey, big boy. You know, what makes you so strong? What does it take to tie you up insecurely to, to tie you up? And Samson's like, oh, let's have some fun. So he's playful. So Samson says, sure, if you tie me with a certain kind of rope, I can't break free. And he lets her tie him up, and it's all fun and games until she's testing him. And she has some Philistines waiting nearby in hiding to, to, when she knows that she has them. And then she tests him and says, oh, the Philistines are here to capture you, Samson, playfully. And when he hears that, he's done playing. So he breaks the ropes like they never even on him. And then she's like, oh. So she tries another one. Tell me the truth. You, you lied to me. What's, what's the secret? How do I tie you up securely so you can't break free? He gives her another story. 
And she tries that, and the same outcome, he breaks free. Over and over again, this goes on. At one point, he has seven locks to his hair. He says, tie each of the locks of my hair to, the, you know, to, a, to a beam, and it, it will restrain me, and I'll be, I'll be overpowered. He's getting close to home now. And she tries that, and it doesn't work either. Every time the Philistines are ready to, to jump on him, but every time he's too powerful because she's testing him. And finally, the Philistines who are waiting, they just go home. They just went home. They're like, whatever. Let us call us. You know, you got my, you got my cell number. Call me when he's ready. And they went home. And, and Delilah is now going to turn on the guilt trip. Verse 15, Judges 16, 15. Then Delilah pouted. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? There should be no secrets between us. How can you say you love me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. Samson ought to be like having deja vu right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, I remember this other time when I was the Philistine girl who did the same spiel to me, and I fell for it and it cost me. But actually wants to, to, time, to, to, to capture me? I mean, this is kind of high stakes here. She's given him the same guilt trip. Verse 16, she tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. It's like, just whatever happens, I don't care. It's better than this. Finally, yikes, finally Samson shared his secret with her. He says, my hair has never been cut, he confessed. For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. Like, Samson, what are you doing, dude? Verse 18, Delilah realized that she, he had finally told her the truth. So she sent for the Philistine ruler. She says, come back one more time, she said, for he has finally told me his secret. So the Philistine rulers returned with the money in their hands. It is about to be payday for Delilah. And they brought the money. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap. And then she called a man in to shave off the seven locks of his hair. In this way, she began to bring him down. And his strength, his strength left him. And in this moment, the whole story changes. Then she cried out. She's gonna, she wakes him up. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will go as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. And what happens in this spot is, is that tragic spot that if you ever like to watch a, st a story or read a story or watch a movie about a superhero or a, a good guy who always wins, it's always so painful when you watch them fall, when their enemy finally defeats them. It's such a, such a hard thing to read. It's hard to see anyone go through a painful defeat, but especially the hero. And Samson's been that guy for Israel, incidentally. But in this moment, it's a sad outcome. Verse 21 tells us what happens next. It says, so the Philistines captured him and they gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains 
and was forced to grind grain in the prison, like an animal that you put on the, the wheel and he just, like a mule, walks around. He's forced, he's blind, his eyes are gouged out, he's blind. He's been bound in chains and fetters and now he's grinding like an animal, bound and blind in a prison house. It's just a, it's just, it's a sad story for anybody. Anybody, you, you read of anyone in that situation, you'd be like, oh, that's terrible. But it's extra, ugh, when you see it, like, it was the mighty one, the hero, the, the, the winner, and he's conquered and he's defeated by his enemies. And as you read that story, I just want to take a minute here to just remind us that, that this story just sets up a reminder to us that when we make unwise choices and we make sinful choices and when we make, well, don't go to the wrong path, that, that sin has consequences. And, and I have felt led to t- share the story today just as, in preparation because I think maybe God's spirit knows that someone needs to hear this today. But as you read that story, as you read that verse, where they, first of all, God judged his eyes, and secondly, they bound him, and thirdly, they forced him to grind grain in the prison. I think in that, that one verse, we encapsulate just three big ideas about making sinful or wrong choices in life and the consequences that it brings. Three things about the consequences of sin I want to point out today from that verse. Number one is this, that sin blinds. Sin blinds. Folks, it just does. Long before Samson lost his eyesight, he was already blind to the temptations around him. I mean, how, how, how could he not see that he was a special mission from God? How could he not see the... the um, you know, his parents' warnings about his choices that he was making. How could he not see where this was taking him? How could, he not, how could he not fall for that same line from a second woman to give away his secrets? In this case, the, the, the most important one. How could, how could a mighty man not, not, not miss that? But sin blinds us. Folks, sin always blinds us. Look, this is what I, we all know people that we love dearly, and perhaps it's ourselves at times, who've gone on the path of life and we've said, no, no, that's not how it is. We make a bad choice and then we justify it. We're like, well, it's not really wrong to do that, to put that substance in my body, to, to, to meet that person for a private meal, to go over here and, and, and spread that gossip, to whatever it may be. We, we all make bad choices and then we justify them. And the people who say it's wrong, we say, oh, they're just, you know, being, you know, they're trying to, you know, repress me and control me. And we get mad at the people who tell us because sin blinds. It blinds us so often. And some of us, we walk around willingly blinded by the things we want to do. That's what sin does. But number two, sin not only blinds, but sin binds. I've heard it so many times, and so have you. Oh, I'm in control. I got this. I can quit anytime I want to. I can, I can end that relationship before it gets too far. I got this. I'm in control. Oh, I, so I, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just a little upset, but I, I can handle this. I'm in control. I'm just I'm not too angry. We always think we got it. And we don't realize that sometimes it's sin that actually has us bound. And we think that we're the one in control, but we're not. Because sin blinds and sin binds. Number three, I want to say sin, sin grinds. It grinds in the end. When you get to the end and you get to the consequences of sinful choices, it is always a spot where we say it wasn't worth it. How many times would we go back and say, if I could just undo this one thing, I wouldn't be living in this circumstance. I wouldn't have that regret. I wouldn't have experienced that heartache. If I could just go back, because sin blinds and sin binds. And ultimately, in the end, sin grinds. Growing up, I heard a pastor once say, 
that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you far more than you want to pay. It grinds. If someone today needs to hear that, and I don't know who you are, perhaps you're here, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're listening to this later, but let God's Spirit nudge you and say, you know, heed the warning from a good, good Father who loves you and wants better for you. Maybe we're talking to a teenager in the precipice of making bad choices. Maybe it's a married man or a married woman who's on the brink of doing something that they can't undo. If God's speaking to your heart, listen to him. Now, if you've been on a bad path before on any level and you've experienced the bite, you've experienced the bite of sin's consequences, you're like, yeah, I know that feeling. Sin does blind and bind and it does grind. I want to encourage you a little bit today because the story's not quite over. I love the very next verse in the story of Samson. In Judges chapter 16, verse 22, it says this. But before long, his hair began to grow back. That's such a powerful word. I can picture Samson in that prison house, sitting there day after day when he would rest from his work or eat his food and put his face in his hands. He can't see anymore. He, and he would just say, what have I done? He could feel his hair, what's gone in his head. Then the stubble was there. But one day he noticed the hair was growing back. One day, before too long, his hair began to grow back. It's a picture of time. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in a mess of our own making, there's just no quick way out of it. We've just got to kind of stay in, sometimes we all know what it's like to stay in the space of bad decisions for a while, to live under the oppression of what we can't undo. But at some point in time, time begins to do what God does with time. An opportunity came back, an opportunity for redemption, and second chances can reemerge. And Samson's about to have exactly a second chance. Verse, uh, well, before I go there, let me tell you the story. At one point, the Philistines decide to throw a massive celebration to celebrate the defeat of their enemy, Samson. They invite all the lords of the Philistines, all the rulers, all the who's who, the people, the powerful people, the leaders all packed into a, their temple. They came to their temple. And they brought in food, and they brought in booze, and they began to party and celebrate the defeat of Samson. And the best part of the whole celebration was they were bringing Samson into the middle of the temple so they could watch their old powerful enemy walk around with his eyes gouged out in binds and, and just mock him as a defeated foe. They actually had a young boy come in and lead Samson by hand. What a humiliating thing for him. He's so blind that this big, strong man, his eyes are sight's gone. He's got chains and he's got a young boy leading him in because he can't find his, he can't get around. He can't see. And the crowd's raucous and cheering and Samson's just emasculated and embarrassed by the whole thing. But in the middle of all of that, he says to the boy, where's the pillar? You know, there's a couple pillars in the middle of the temple that hold it up. Where's the pillar? I need to rest against it. I'm tired. And the boy doesn't know it's, have any clue about any other motives. And he leads Samson over to the center pillars that supported the temple so Samson can rest against them. And the crowd's raucous and drinking and partying. Verse 28, then Samson prayed to the Lord. By the way, I want to pause right there and say this. If you've gone on a path that's led you to somewhere that you did not want to go, kept you longer than you wanted to stay, and has cost you more than you wanted to pay. I want to encourage you today to be careful because it'd be very easy to think that because life has dealt some hard blows means that God doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. And that's nothing could be further from the truth. 
God loves you unconditionally. We are all a hot mess in our own ways, and we all have experienced the good and the bad, but God just loves you. And the worst thing you could do is let the enemy convince you to stay hidden from God's presence. Turn to him in prayer. Samson, in the middle of this moment, he prays to the Lord. And maybe that's, maybe that's what someone needs to hear today. It's time to come back and say, God, it's me again. I've been running, I've been hiding, I've been, maybe I've been living under a, a cloud of shame that I've let hold me back. But it's time for me to talk to you again. Samson prayed to the Lord. He says, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please, please strengthen me just, just one more time. Just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Verse 29, then Samson put his hands on the center pillars, the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, let me die with the Philistines. And when the temple crashed down on the Philistines and the rulers of, and all the people, so Samson killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. That's a powerful statement right there. That Samson, after he wrecked, after his fall, accomplished more to deliver his people from the Philistines, which was God, what God made him to do. God made him to do that. He accomplished more for his life's purpose after his fall than he ever did before his fall. Isn't that powerful? I mean, God used him in his mightiest form after it all. And boy, did, did he see God do something powerful after his failure. Here, here's what I want to say to you today. If you are here today and you wonder if on top of all the things that you've experienced and all maybe the wrong choices you've made and the earthly struggles you've had from making bad decisions, if you ever wonder, is God just done with me? I want to tell you, no way. He loves you. Not just does he, does he love you, but he has plans for you. Your best days may be in front of you. Your most mighty days may be in front of you. Rise up by the grace of God. But listen carefully. I'm not saying to the other crowd, so it doesn't matter, do what you want to, because you can, your best days could be in front of you. Ask Samson if he wouldn't want to go back in time and get his eyesight back. Ask Samson if he wouldn't want to live his life out a different way. But that's, that ship had passed. But he still found God used him mightily, even after his fall. Got two crowds today. If you're at the crossroads of making some decisions that you are wrestling with and justifying and struggling with and defending and hiding, hear the warning from a, a good, good father who loves you. And if you're here today and you've been down a wrong path and you can't go back now, hear the love of a, and hope from a good, good father who loves you. And he says to you today, the past is the past, but the best can be in front of you. The best can be ahead. In fact, even earlier in the story, Judges 14, 4, we saw, we read this earlier. The Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity. All along the way, while Samson was making bad choices, after he made a mess, God was always working because God is sovereign. God is in control. He's got all this, and God can work. God can make all things work together for good because God is good like that. And he was able to do more afterwards than he did beforehand. Not worth the pain, but good to find purpose. You see, I'm wrapping up. Two things can both be true today. Two things can both be true. Number one, the cost of making bad choices is not worth it. And at the same time, 
God can make something out of our bad choices. Two things can both be true. And I want you, to, wherever you are today, to hold on to the, to, to, the, to the idea that you need to hear right now. Because as I said at the beginning, yes, there's the spiritual side for, for which Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from, but there's also the earthly human side of the things that we do. When it comes to, to doing wrong or sinning, I said it earlier, I'll say it again, God wants to be the only one to pay the price for sin. Not for his, but for yours on the cross, spiritually. He loves you. And he wants to redeem you. And he wants to keep you from having the heartache of your, in your relationships. And, and if you don't, he can pick you back up afterwards. Even though God brings spiritual forgiveness, there's earthly consequences when you go off and do something foolish. But then God is also the God of the second chance. In life. Not to mention the fact that he loves you eternally and heaven is for you by faith in Jesus Christ for anybody. But I wonder today, where are you? If you've never received the grace of God, if you've never, heard the, if you've never received the gospel, here's what I want to ask you to do today. In the seat back in front of you, we're going to have a moment of prayer. The third card in the back says the gospel. Use the quiet time to pull that out, read it over. There's even a sample prayer you can pray. Today, say, Father, if you love me so much to send your son for my sins, and you want relationship with me, and you paid the spiritual price, today I believe that and I receive it. As many as received him, he gives the authority to become the children of God to all who believe on his name. Put your faith and trust in God and receive his grace. Receive eternal life. Receive relationship with him today. Spiritually, if you've not done so, what a day to do so. If you already have, don't mistake spiritual forgiveness and earthly consequences. And hear the warning and receive the hope that comes after a fall. And wherever you are today, it could be well with you. If you've fallen, if you're, if you're struggling down a bad temptation, today say, God, we're gonna sing a song in just a moment here. God, take the, I, I surrender my will to yours. I surrender, I'm fighting you, but God, I know I should not do that. I don't wanna find out the consequences of bad choices. I surrender to you. You'll find peace that passes understanding in doing so. You always do. You can say, it is well with my soul. And if you've gone down the wrong path and you've lived with the consequences afterwards and you let shame and let the devil whisper in your ear and keep you down, just push that aside and say, God, I give that to you. I'm moving forward because, because you want me to. And experience the hope and grace and restoration of God and let it be well with your soul. And I hope that today, wherever you are, it is well.